Wednesday is Ash Wednesday, so this makes it the last Sunday uh, before Ash Wednesday, the last Sunday of Epiphany season. And traditionally, the Anglican Church has always remembered the Transfiguration on this Sunday, the Sunday, whatever it happens to be, right before the beginning of Lent. Now, the Transfiguration is one of those two really special moments in the New Testament. We remember at the Lord's Baptism, they're called Theophanies. We see the God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit reveal Himself. Remember at the Baptism, Jesus is in the water. We see the Spirit descend in the form of a dove, and we have the Father say, This is my Son, my beloved Son. And here we have the Trinity again. We have Jesus on the mountain. We have the Father's voice saying, This is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. And the Holy Spirit this time is the cloud that covers him, like the cloud that used to fill the temple or the tabernacle to show the living presence of God. So why would we always look at the transfiguration right before Lent? Well, it's no coincidence. Jesus prepares his apostles for his death, and for his death by giving them this image of, gl of glory. This is their preparation, as we saw in today's prayer, today's collect. This is their preparation to get through what's about to happen. And the church does the same thing for us. As we're about to go into Lent, it gives us this vision. The church prepares us for Lent with this same vision. Now, it's quite a vision in the sense that Peter, years later, someone who had seen the risen Lord Jesus, still goes back to this day as being extraordinary. In 2 Peter, he says, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. So why, when we think of preparing people, like if you're a parent and you realize your children are going to have to be alone and you want to give them something, you know, you, what, what's the best advice you could give them? What's the best thing you could do for them to prepare them for difficult times? Jesus is about to die. This is as traumatic as it can be for his apostles. What does he choose? He offers this vision of his glory to prepare, him for, prepare them for his death. So why? Why would that prepare them for his death? It's a reason for hope. Actually, the title of the sermon is The Two Eyes of Hope. And hope is one of the theological virtues. We've talked about it often in the past, faith, hope, and love. You know, Paul loves to recite them. And, you know, it's faith, hope, and love. If it's like a middle child. Hope is sort of lost in the shuffle, isn't it? I mean, let's be honest. We love to talk about faith. We talk a lot about love. But hope sort of gets lost in between. It's there. We love it. Yeah, sure. But, you know, but it sort of gets lost in the shuffle. And our focus today is there too on this incredible virtue. When the Lord wants to prepare his apostles, this is the virtue he focuses on. We're going to look at two different aspects, two, I call them the two eyes of hope. Just as, and why would there be two? Well, we think of our physical eyes, they give us depth perception, right? We can still see if we have an, uh, an accident and we lose an eye, but we lose our depth perception, right? We can't see the same way. And so the same thing is true. If we don't have both of these aspects of hope, these eyes of hope, there's something lacking in our spiritual depth perception. So what are they? Well, the first eye of hope is our vision for the future. 
And this is important. We look at the word hope. The word hope, unfortunately, has almost the opposite meaning in regular spoken English today. Hope implies doubt. I hope he's coming tonight. It means I must have some doubt, or I'd say he is coming tonight. Right? Hope implies, in modern English, doubt. I'm not sure, which would be true. It'd be a desirable outcome, but I'm not going to guarantee it. In the New Testament, it doesn't have that sense at all. Hope is the opposite. It means certainty. The certainty of a future outcome is what hope is about. So, what is the importance of that vision, our certainty of the future, our vision of the future? Why is that so important? Because inevitably, the choices we make in life will be determined by that vision. Our vision of the future inevitably will govern the choices we make. We see this in the world we live in, the 21st century, a post-Christian world, a post-modern world. What's happened? Well, it's universally, despite Celine Dion and crooning on about going on, the fact is people don't believe in life after death. They don't. The death is the end. And so we're not new to this idea. Uh, in the book of Ecclesiastes, what does the preacher say? He says, but he who is joined with all the, all the living has hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead don't know anything, and they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Wow. So that's the world's vision, that this is the end. Death is the end of life. Plain and simple, there is no more. Poetically, romantically, but we don't really believe as a society in the secular world that there's life after death. Now, that brings huge consequences. If that's true, that means if I'm ever going to be happy, it has to be now. Seriously, what other time is there? If I'm ever going to be happy, it has to be now. And that means there is no reasonable basis for profound self-sacrifice. There's no sense for, you've heard the expression a lot, I don't want to waste my life. Because there is nothing else. I don't want to waste my life. I think this is a lot of the culture of death that surrounds us. This is the story of abortion, the idea of a child's coming at an inconvenient time. This is going to change everything. I might not be able to finish school on time, I might wreck, wreck my career. The child might have severe defects. It will take all our time. We didn't plan on this. We planned on cute and cuddly. We didn't plan on needy. Well, I wish it could be different, but I can't waste my life. Or relationships, starter marriages, this kind of thing, the idea of, I finally found the real love of my life. You know, it's tragic, but how could I waste my life? This is my one opportunity. Basically, what we say in the modern world is, I want to be a decent guy, but in the end, I have to do what's right for me. I have to do what makes sense in the sense of my life here and now before my death, maximizing my self-actualization. Now, we might say, Paul, by the way, agrees with this view that this is true if you don't believe in the resurrection. You know, sometimes people argue, well, what's the, what's the harm in being a Christian because you live a better life anyway? Paul doesn't agree with that. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if in Christ we have hoped in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. It all depends on that vision. Do we really believe, you know, in that vision for the future? For a Christian, death isn't the end of life. It's the beginning of eternal life. It changes everything. Remember in Hebrews, when it's talking about the great patriarchs, it talks about Noah and Enoch, it talks about Abraham, it talks about Jacob. And what does it describe? What was moving them on? It says, but as it were, they desired a better country. That is a heavenly one. 
Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he's prepared for them a city. And self-sacrifice in the Gospels is considered an investment in eternity, not wasting our lives, actually the exact opposite, gaining our lives. Jesus says, don't lay up for yourself treasures, rather, he says, lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves don't break in and steal. And the absolute opposite of the world's mindset, he says, whoever would save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. The exact opposite. And we're able with that vision, with that vision of our future, we're able to make the hard choices. We're not wasting our lives. It's not a futile gesture. Paul said, For I consider that the suffering of this present time is not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. That's in uh, Romans 8. And in first, uh, 2 Corinthians 4, he says, For this light, momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So the first aspect of hope, the first eye of hope, is this vision of the future, our vision of eternal life, which is the gift of the resurrection. It changes everything. So what's the second aspect of hope? It's our vision for the present. It's formed by our vision for the future, but it's a very separate vision for the present. It's, you know, the, the New Testament loves to talk about the invisible and the visible as being two realities, both very, very, very real. And except the one difference is the invisible actually is more real because by definition, anything we can see, the very things that make it visible will make it disappear over time. Anything that we can touch, that we can feel, that's subject to our sensation, perishes. It's the invisible that's lasting. So this second eye of hope lets us see beyond the visible to the invisible, beyond appearance to reality. In today's gospel, Jesus shows himself in glory. I love the quote. That's why I saw the bulletin cover. What happens when they look down, they get up, Jesus touches them. I love this. All they see, only Jesus. Just Jesus. That's a profound statement. You see, Jesus hadn't changed. That glory was inherent in Jesus. We just couldn't see it. It's like when you go on a plane and it's all overcast and you get, you know, as you get up in the sky, you go over the clouds and you realize the sun hasn't disappeared. There are blue skies up there. It's simply the overcast of the ground. We can't see them. It allows us to see the reality that it's the same Jesus, not just Jesus. It's the same one. It gives us eyes to see that transfiguration. A perfect example of seeing beyond the visible to the invisible, beyond appearance to reality, is the crucifixion. We, I think, sense because we have crosses and things, we lose the sense of the scandal the crucifixion was to the ancient world. That Jesus was a condemned criminal, that he died on a cross. This is a scandal. It didn't, this, it's defeat and humiliation. How could anyone be proud of this? Well, the resurrection I get. You say, but why the cross? Remember, Jesus is the Messiah, the anointed one, and he's anointed king. And kings, were their, their goal, their, their job was to bring victory for their people, triumph. This is the moment on the cross that Jesus brought victory. This is what victory looks like. He put an end to sin and death on the cross. It didn't look like that to the eyes, to humans' eyes, but that was the spiritual reality. 
This is, this is why Jesus says before his crucifixion, speaking of the crucifixion, not the resurrection, says, now is the time, the hour for the Son of Man to be glorified, to be lifted up, to be glorified on the cross. That was the victory. He's also anointed as the great high priest in the book of Hebrews, the great high priest who would offer the one-time sacrifice, would make all other sacrifices needless for all time. Well, where does that occur? It occurs on the cross. If we want to see the victorious king, the great high priest, we see him there, but it doesn't look that way to human eyes. That's why we have two such different reactions to the crucifixion. The people who saw with earthly eyes, what did they see? They said, he saved others. Let him save himself. Get down from that cross and we'll believe in you. From all appearances, they were right. But there was somebody there who saw with the eyes of faith. He's the hero of Mark's gospel. The whole Mark's gospel builds up to it. The centurion at the foot of the cross says, this really was the Son of God. He saw beyond a dead, bloody corpse on the cross. He said, this truly was the Son of God. So how does this vision for the present affect our lives? It changes everything. For example, we probably say, wouldn't it be, a way, wouldn't it be wonderfully if we could personally, wonderful if we could personally encounter the Lord Jesus? Wouldn't that be great? Well, it is possible. Jesus says in Matthew 25, truly, truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. When Saul and his vision on the Damascus Road, Jesus doesn't say, why are you persecuting my church? He says, why are you persecuting me? Jesus is all around us, in the people here. The people we run across in our daily lives are the chance to have a living. Anything we do for them, anything, any love we give them is given to the Lord. If you want to love the Lord, we love those people in our lives. We meet Jesus every day in our lives. Whatever you did for the least of these, Give a, a glass of cold water. will never be forgotten. You've done it for me. Remember, he says that, that last, come blessed of my Father to receive the internal inheritance given to you in heaven. Remember, they don't, they don't recognize when it was. They said, but Lord, we never did this. When? He said, it's when you did those things. So we encounter the Lord every day if we have the eyes of hope to see him. Also, we say, I would love to do something important for God. I'm not really in a position to do anything meaningful. You know, there are people who do very visible kingdom-type work. That must be wonderful, but that's not the story of my life. That's, those aren't my particular talents. I don't have anything really special to offer to God. Well, that's not how Jesus sees it. Remember one day, Jesus is at the treasury, and there were all these people giving gifts. And he points out to the apostles, to, hey, you're going to really see something. You're going to see what a big gift looks like. He says, look at that widow there. She has actually, she's just given two coins. She's given more than everyone here because she gave out, they gave out of their abundance. They had plenty left over. She gave everything she had to live on. So the, this is a beautiful message of hope for us. All of us, you see, God doesn't need our stuff. He's the God of the universe. My father of blessed memory liked to say to me when I get on this kind of thing, he said, son, trust me, I'm older than you. God somehow scraped by before you were born. <laughs> God doesn't need our stuff. What he wants, the gift he seeks, that only we can give is ourselves. 
That's what the woman gave, by giving the widow gave, by giving everything. And that's in everybody's reach. Jesus actually says the poor are in a better position to give that. They're closer to giving everything. So every one of us is in position to give exactly the perfect gift to God. Mother Teresa memorably said, you know, we can't all do great things, but we can all do small things with great love. And she points out anything we give to God is infinite. Becomes infinite. Remember that, that boy who gives his bread and he gives the, 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 the fish? And that was hardly enough for one lunch. These are like little dinner roll types of things. And it was enough to feed 5,000 people. Why? Because it was given to Jesus. Anything given to God is always enough. It was a sign. It's always enough. We all have what God wants. So we can't argue when we see the Lord face to face that we had nothing to give. We had exactly the gift at every moment to give. What about the grind of our daily lives? We might say, what I do most hours of the day has no profound meaning. It's just making a living. Other people have careers. I have a job. I make money. I sell my time for the money to support my family. How can that possibly be meaningful? That's most of my hours. How can that be meaningful? Well, Paul talks to somebody, to people in a worse situation. He talks to slaves. Talk about people having no career path. I mean, these were people here who had no control or any of the, most, the smallest choice of their lives. And he gives them a word for hope. He says, bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. What Paul is saying is it doesn't matter what the object of our work is. Anything given to God with our whole heart is taken, is done for Him. That's what he's saying. Don't worry. It doesn't matter who you're working for. It doesn't matter what you're called to do. It's always possible in the place we find ourselves to give what we have to God. Always possible. And it's a beautiful thing to God. Finally, we say, well, what about suffering? I have suffering in my life. How can, it's sort of making my life futile. It could have been such a beautiful life except for these things, this illness, this, this relationship problem. My life has been turned into misery. Paul says in Colossians, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and in my flesh, for I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body. That is the church. What are we saying? There's nothing missing in Christ's perfect sacrifice. But when we say that we're the body of Christ, this isn't a metaphor. It really means that as part of the body of Christ, if I offer them to God, my sufferings are Christ's actual sufferings, and anything Christ does becomes meaningful. Mother Teresa again put it this way. She said, it's taking the things that should take, happen to us with a big smile, saying, Lord, if this is where you want me to be, I'm here. That's what Jesus does in the garden. He says, this is certainly my idea, not my will, but yours be done. You know, we like to criticize in our Bible lessons and things, we criticize the Jews of Jesus' stuff. How could they fail to recognize the Messiah when he's right there and they saw him? Honestly, folks, is our story really that different? The second I, then, a second, you know, the second aspect of hope is our vision for the present. It's based on our vision for the future, knowing that permanent hope that we suddenly, the world looks different to us. We see Jesus everywhere he is to be seen. So we say hope has two aspects, our vision for the future 
and our vision for the present. So we talk about vision. What does that, allow, that vision allow us to see? It allows us to see the truth. And as Jesus said, the truth will set you free. I joked before about hope being the middle theological virtue. You know, it's not an accident why hope is in the middle. Because you can't have, you can't have hope without faith. But you can't have love without hope. One gives birth to the other. It's only from the hope. Otherwise, we'll, we'll live lives of scarcity. It's only with the hope of seeing things as they really are. Others are going to, we're going to be resentful and feeling scarcity. I'm doing all these things. Church will become another job, another set of responsibilities. With the eyes of hope, everything changes. Hope makes genuine love possible. So let's pray today for the fullness of the virtue of hope. Let us pray for an eye that never loses sight of our call to glory, of what our life is all about, eternal glory with God. An eye to see God and respond to him in every aspect, in every person who crosses our path, in every place that we find ourselves put. Let us pray today for the hope that allows us to see with God's eyes so we can love with God's heart. Amen.